Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good afternoon and welcome to the War Room. This is Bill Evans. I'm here today with Don Schonzenbeck, uh, Bach, up here in the uh, foothills of the Appalachians. Since I'm, uh, don't well, want you said it correctly too. Very yeah. Good. Well, I, listen, I'm, I don't want uh, I don't want Becky Moorcraft coming after me. Uh, but we're up here in the foothills uh, at a rest area up here off I-26 and. Uh, uh, Don was coming, was transiting through the area, and I was coming the other way. And so I'd been wanting to talk with Don recently. Uh, many of you may know him from Facebook as Suspender Man, and he is here in Suspenders today. Uh, but the reason why we wanted to have Don with us today is uh, because Don, in addition to being a finished carpenter, furniture maker, and uh, woodsmith, is a writer. And uh, I'm going to let him tell us about his journey into uh, literary excellence, uh, how he how he came to realize that he had a book inside of him that needed to be written, and uh, what was what led up to that, and some specific questions re- relating to uh, every Reconstructionist favorite topic besides the Lord Jesus Christ and post millennialism and theonomy, of course. <laughs> and that's good Christian books. So we're going to talk to Don a little bit about Christian books and what makes christian books good don welcome to the war room yeah i'm glad to be here and you know when we're thinking about writing and uh, the christian enterprise you know why why would a guy want to write why would a christian want to write at all and uh how are we not just like the world when we write there's um it has everything to do with the transformation of the soul and a desire to build god's kingdom that's i mean it was probably 20 years ago when I I started thinking I want to write and I I started writing Christmas letters to all my friends that every year I'd send out one letter and I decided that that I wanted to write a Christmas letter that actually remembered to mention Christ and that that was beautifully written so that was how I started I started writing these Christmas letters and within a year or two I had people saying to me you should be a writer. You should be a writer. So it was that little beginning of uh, sending out 100 letters a year that got me going. And I still send those letters out uh, even now. But uh, but that expanded into eventually writing a blog for about three years and writing uh, numerous magazine published articles, newspaper uh, editorials. And any place I could find that I could write to express a Christian biblical worldview as applied to society. That's what I was concerned about. Now, Don, have you had any success in getting your um, Christian worldview writing into secular uh, magazines or newspapers or books? Or has it mainly been primarily within the uh, 
Christian community literature? Mostly within the Christian community. A few newspaper editorials, but that's about it. Now, did you have to pursue that opportunity to to uh, vent your writing? Uh, or, or were you pursued? Did they approach you? Or did you have to approach them in, with an interest in uh, submitting some of your uh, writing to, let's say, a, a magazine? Or, or Well, the magazines, they pursued me. So they had seen, once again, my Christmas letters, you know, people that I knew, and had uh, ownership of Christian magazines, and then they just asked me to write articles. Okay. So I, I did that. Every Thought Captive, I wrote about 25 articles for them. That's mostly, you know, a few other, couple other magazines, but that's mostly who I wrote for. Did you, uh, have you been a, 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 a journaler most of your, uh, through your uh, Christian life? No, I've never journaled. Never, no. okay, never kept a quiet time diary or for for a week, <laughs> and I figured out, you know what? I never look back at them. I don't keep sermon notes on Sunday mornings because I never look back at them. So each time you write, you're really sitting down with a blank paper. You're not like you're not like compiling or or or, or, or put, pulling things from a diary or something you've written before and fat, and then building an article around it. You're you're sitting down basically with a blank piece of paper. And a thought, and you're 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 starting from scratch each time. Well, I've been writing long enough now that I have a pretty extensive number of articles and things I've written, research I've done. I'll have research files and things I'm interested. in. I research scriptures, and so I can reach back to all my notes that I've made. Just have you ever written? Studies. Have you ever written um, any hymns or poetry or anything? No, one I've written one poem. You can find it in my Advancing the Kingdom book sitting right there. Okay. Yeah, that's another thing I want to talk to you about because I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, boy, there's got to be a way to do this. But uh, you've written now how many published books? I have written five books. So I wrote the Advancing the Kingdom book, which was back, that was my first book. It was a Christian worldview study book that we put together back in 2001. And uh, I did that in-house, me and my daughter Erica, and uh, then I wrote a book on homeschooling, the faithful parents, faithful children, which is still available. And uh, then I wrote uh, the Liberty book, which you have right here, and that I did with a friend of mine named John Bona. So we worked together to put this this book out, and that just came out. That's just published uh, in the last few weeks. Came off the press. So, and then I have a couple others. I have one on the Christian uh, vote book, which is out right now too. It can be ordered. So, now, um, <clears throat> I, I, I've uh, I know people like Scott Allen Bus has written several books. Uh, you know, Scott is the uh, as the blogger at Fire Breathing Christian. Yes. And uh, now he's he has self published his books. Yeah. I guess through Amazon. Is that a different? Path or uh, c- compared to the, the 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 process that you followed in the past, or were, or was that not available when you started, or were there reasons why you chose not to self-publish? Well, I did self-publish my first two, the Advancing the Kingdom and the Homeschooling book. I self-published those, and they were on Amazon. Maybe still are. I don't know, but uh, yeah, you know the self-publishing route. A lot of people don't understand how books make it into the marketplace. They see books, they buy books, but they don't know how they got there. And if you self-publish, that's great. If you sell a book as as the writer, you make all the profit on that book. That's great. The problem is it's harder to market books than it is to write books. So 
the uh, the amount of, of uh, connections and, and money and um, uh, just the, the time and the energy that it takes to market a book makes is tremendously difficult to make any, any real money on a book. So that's why there's thousands of self-published books that go nowhere. You know, they sell two, three hundred copies or five hundred copies and then they're never heard from again. So people self-publish books on Amazon and do them print on demand. Well, Amazon absorbs so much of the money out of that process that as an author, you're not going to get much. Yeah, I presume, obviously, although, you know, you're not going to turn away money, but I presume that your your motive in, in writing the books was not primarily financial. Uh, you, you wrote about topics you're passionate about. Yeah, that is exactly correct. When I first wrote the Advancing the Kingdom book, I was... I was quite a bit younger than I am now and I was naive so I just assumed that if I wrote a book people would want it and buy it and it was going to be a long happy <laughs> prosperous business but I found it was quite a bit more difficult so but yes I wrote these books because it was a passion of mine that I wanted to see the kingdom of Christ expanded in this world to the best of my ability I do whatever I could for you know God has told us seek first uh, the kingdom and righteousness, those two things, and then uh, things will be added on to you or, you know, the things that you need. So that's been the goal of my life is, you know, what am I going to do uh, to expand, uh, seek first God's kingdom, and how am I going to live a righteous life? Those two are married, and that's that spells the direction for my life. That's what I try to do. Now, uh, Don, are prolific writers usually avid readers? Yes. Yeah, they are, if they're good writers. You know, it's one thing to write your opinion on something, but it's another thing to write it well. So, if uh, if some of your listeners have uh, they have an idea that well, I want to be a Christian writer, then good, become a reader, and become a, a reader of excellent books, and become a reader of excellent theology, and that's your start. Can would you say that you can detect a discernible writing pattern that you have? Adopted as a result of any of any particular uh, authors that you have gravitated to in your own reading. For instance, I know that if you pray, let's say, uh, if you read a lot of Puritan authors, mm-hmm. uh, you tend to begin to pray like a Puritan. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know whether it's congregational or just <clears throat> private praying. And of course, that's you know that's f- funny. You know, like like the Valley of Vision by Bennett. You know, which is a compilation of of excerpts from Puritan prayer diaries. Well, a lot of evangelicals have never even been exposed to the Puritans. And so for them, it seems um, rigid, wooden, and very unnatural and, 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 and uh, archaic. But if you've read the Puritans, uh, it's, you're probably already praying that way anyway to some extent. To some extent. I mean, have you, have you been influenced in your writing style by particular authors that you have been able to tell? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've been influenced by authors, probably, you know, both good and bad or in between. But, you know, what we do is that we're looking for uh, style elements, uh, ways that we can use language that are God-honoring and uh, can get the message out to a larger world. Uh, We want to be able to use language in ways that will be um, very attractive to the eye, to the ear of our readers. So, yeah, we're looking, every writer, anybody that writes much, they're going to be looking everywhere they read for uh, 
something they they can learn from a different you know various writers you know I mean I know I, one of my favorite authors used to be Ann Coulter and it could be, and she has a snippy style to her now I don't agree with a lot of her opinions but I kind of picked up on some of that snippy style and, and used that for quite a while not mm. so much now but it's you know the things that we see in authors um, are um, well they're not always good but we try to pick up the good and leave behind the bad well I uh, in a recent interview with uh, Brian Abshire yeah who wrote for Conceden uh, and uh, I've had several people tell me man I really like the way Brian Abshire writes if I could re- write like anybody I'd want to write like him okay yeah and recently, we were talking, and he made reference to the fact that you can read quicker than you can process information by listening. And I was rather surprised at that. But evidently, uh, uh, his, his contention was is that there, even with audiobooks, there will always be a place and an important one for books. Yeah. Because uh, I know for myself, I guess I'm... I'm preaching to the choir I know from I know myself from listening to audiobooks on reconstructionist radio generally those are the ones I want to go out and buy <laughs> right because I want to read them I, I, more slowly I want to mm-hmm. be able to make notes and and and, and so on and so forth so uh, well I, that's I, what's I, happening in the marketplace too you know we think that all these electronic means of communication will have kind of squashed the need for books but people are buying books by the truckloads yet people are still buying a lot of books and god's word came to us in written form and because it came to us in written form we can consider that that was not a mistake so uh there's yes there's always going to be a place for to read uh that written word to contemplate on it to use it so we're yeah we're not there's not going to be you know any end to the need for christian books well, obviously, um, if you're like me, going into most Christian bookstores is a disappointing experience. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, you might find Spruill uh, and a Matthew Henry commentary, but obviously so many of the books that we might gravitate toward or lust or covet uh, um, are, are not in most Christian bookstores. What makes a good Christian book, Don? Well, you know, there are a lot of elements that make a good Christian book, and that's what makes good writing difficult. But uh, one of the things that we want to do as Christian writers is that we want to include the great themes of Scripture uh, within our, our writing. And one of the things you find, for instance, in the Liberty Book, which I was very conscious to do, was to build in sound doctrine from start to finish and there are themes in there. For instance... Um, Who's who sound doctrine? Yours or somebody <laughs> well, else's? Well, we want sound biblical doctrine. Of course, I suppose every guy that tries to uh, develop a theology thinks that his doctrine is the best. In the interest of, of full disclosure, you're a, uh, you're, you're a uh, card-carrying Christian reconstructionist? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. One of those guys. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, I believe that Scripture applies to all of life. That theme carries through in the Liberty Book. If... Uh, if you read this book, you will find it is an assumed value that Old Testament scripture applies to the New Testament era, that there's a consistency there. When God says, uh, do not steal in the Old Testament, you know, that command is still good for the New Testament. We, and we also want to clarify as theonomists, we're, we're not presuming that the law of God is only for the people of God, but that 
but that the law of God is for everybody. Yes, it is. And yes. so uh, mm-hmm. that is that is uh, any any evangelism, and, and of course, there's a lot of people out there who uh, wish to, to they want to be faithful. They want to be faithful witnesses and share testimonies, or, or they've given away tracts, or whether it's family members or work associates, or they're doing just street preaching. They do evangelism, and yet there's no law at all. Right. That's a very large mistake. And you know, if your listeners go to the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy and look there, they will see the results that were supposed to uh, be um, be happening amongst the surrounding nations, surrounding Israel, if the people of Israel obeyed God's law. Okay. Well, let me get back back on my question because I'm a I'm I I tend to chase rabbits from time to time. Uh, going back to what makes a good uh, what makes a good Christian book. Now I've read. Uh, I, there are people who I really want to like their their books, but I haven't been able to because their reading style is very unwieldy and and uh, obtuse. I mean, I'll give you an example: R.L. Dabney. You have to be uh, you have to be a good reader to read Dabney, in my opinion, or John Owen. Right. Uh, exactly. Okay, so here's what we need to do. As Christian writers, we need to be able to say uh, Christian biblical truth well, but say it succinctly. We need to be uh, people that are not... You know, the thing is, a theologian thinks in terms of, of precision. He's always looking for precision, precision of expression. And uh, through that process, a theologian tends to become very wordy. Too many words. So... We want to be able to take the, the language of the faith and language that we're expressing the faith in, uh, make it succinct, make it beautiful, make it uh, something that flows well. And that's a whole art that's, um, you know, it's, it's not mathematical. It's something that, that we have to learn. And the best way to learn is by reading good literature. <coughs> Excuse me. Don, do you, do you suppose that your... Um your intent when you uh, set out to write that in your mind obviously you, you nothing says christian reconstruction like excellence nothing but when you set out when you first began to write did you set out to write great books or to write books that would whet people's appetite for great books oh when i first started out i was just trying to say what was on my heart it was that simple and i wanted to say it well but uh yeah, I mean, initially, I was just trying to communicate some very basic ideas that the scriptures apply to all of life. Now, did you feel at the time that those that, that there weren't any books available that were saying what you were thinking? Yeah, well, there were some, but not very many. You know, I started writing, uh, well, my first book came out in 2001, so what, 15 years ago. And at that time, I had discovered uh, R.J. Rushdoony. And who is a tremendous thinker, um, and I know some of your some of your listeners are going to throw rocks at me through the microphone. But his his writing style is difficult. It's um, mm-hmm. it's it's ponderous. So uh, same for for Bonson. Yeah. So I, I North you know, is a better writer than Bonson or Rushed any. <laughs> North is a pretty good writer. Yeah. See, so um, without uh, trying to disparage, you know, some of my favorite writers, I think that there's room out there in the marketplace for Christian writers who can take biblical truth and just say it well. Just say it well. And I don't know how to, 
how to quantify that exactly, except that your your readers and your friends will tell you you're a good writer. You should keep going. Now I've learned from <clears throat> Facebook that economy of words is a virtue. <laughs> yeah, sure, surely is there. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I get some people hit me with these text bombs, and I just next. It, yeah. it, so, uh, are, are good Christian books necessarily <laughs> short Christian books, or easily <laughs> easily digestible at one in one or two sittings? Well, uh, there's a there's a very large open door for books like that. In the recent years, my goal has been to speak uh, to the broader evangelical church. Uh, about some of the great doctrines of Scripture, but talk in, in language and in ideas and stories, for instance, that pique interest, that make them want to, you know, go from page one to page two. Don, do you suppose that uh, that there are crises, circumstances, trials, tests, responsibilities, seasons in people's lives that make them? Um, a ready audience for certain type of books in certain times of their life when they wouldn't have had any interest in in another time, get another place, another set of circumstances. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I We're all that way because the Spirit of God is developing us in the faith. So we're becoming more mature people. We've become more ready for uh, for books that have more depth to them. Yeah, so sure. it's a rare book that really is a uh, for all people in all times. A lot of uh, uh, a lot of books are, 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 I presume, are fairly focused in their in, in terms of their target audience, uh, or no? Well, no. See, I think one of the things that we have not understood as Christian writers is that uh, writing is a trade. You know, a book is a product. Now, we don't want to hear that. We just want to write books and throw them out there and think that the Spirit of God is going to use those books and so we just write what we want to write. But the fact is a book is a product and uh, it needs to have a target audience. So needs to meet a specific need? Yeah, it does. It needs to meet a specific need and it needs to be written to a group of people. Somebody, you have to identify who needs this book. You know, why am I writing this book? Is it just because I feel like writing a book or is it because it's needed somewhere? Does, a, does an author... Uh, ever have really any way to other than I guess direct feedback or reviews do you ever really have a uh, any way of, of knowing the, the the type of person the age occupation gender whatever of, of the people who are uh, who are taking that book and actually devouring it and really and, and making it a, a, a good selling book it's actually doing what you wanted it to do which is presumably uh, in, in affect their lives yeah I don't have the tools to measure that uh, I think it can be be measured but I don't have those tools so I'm the I'm responding to what are people telling me that have seen my books so are your books written to a particular age range uh, well High school to through adult, yeah, that's that's my age range. This and even when I started with that advancing the kingdom book, that was written to high schoolers and to young adults, or you know. Now, is there adults. is there are there people analysts that can read your writing and, and your writing style and say, well, you're reading you're writing to a such and such age range. I, I read one. I remember hearing somewhere that Reader's Digest was written to um, about a sixth grade reading level. 
course, I don't know what year that was. I mean, <laughs> sixth, sixth grade, sixth grade today, they may be learning their vowels and consonants. Uh, you know, uh, but is there any way to know what or to gauge your writing style to a uh, an, at that age range? Or? There probably is, but I don't know what that is. Um, what do you think exemplifies um, a book? I mean, we've all had books, I presume, that have really profoundly affected us. I mean, I, I think one time, I've seen several times on Facebook, for instance, and, uh, you know, people would want to know, what are, the, what are the top ten books or the top three books, or, you know, what are the books that have really in, uh, formed your, 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 your worldview? <clears throat> uh, what do you think exemplifies a book that changes the way we live? Well, you know, the books that change the way we live, it, for one thing, every reader is different. So there's a variety of different types of books needed. You know, some people love to read novels, and uh, others are more attracted to, they'll read heavy theological tomes, or you know, people will concentrate on history. Some people love history. So the fact is, we need Christian writers that can take good sound doctrine and build it artfully into the text of you know whatever field they like to write in so that's that's what we need to do so we need an army of people that want to reconstruct uh, not on their own but by the power of god reconstruct christian society based on god's word and they need to put it into books every kind of book well you know um i was of the opinion that every christian needed to write out their testimony and uh, we launched, uh, we, or we attempted to launch, I, I, I don't know if we ever got into orbit with it, a program on Reconstructionist Radio and the podcast network of, called Once Dead, where we wanted to give, because we have people like Bojadar and Nathan and Scott and others, and we've got, you know, obviously the audio books, we wanted to give our listeners a, a, a venue to uh, share their testimony. With a, with a specific slant on how has God taken your life from being once dead in trespasses and sins until today you can describe yourself as kingdom driven. In other words, your seat, you know, Matthew 6.33 lifestyle. And uh, we couldn't get people to do it. Mm. I may, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, uh, buttonhole you right now on the spot and put you on the spot here on on on, on uh, the podcast we, you know i still believe that would be a valuable uh ministry because your story and my story are going to be different now obviously the this god's solution was the same it was uh, it was the gospel of jesus christ but people will relate to your story some will that that won't relate to mine uh, mine may repulse them you know <laughs> and 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 everyone has a story and i tell people well what you need to do you need to write it out first or dictate it into your an app on your smartphone so that you can read it you don't want to be just stammering and stuttering you know when you're uh, burning up air but you want to make sure that your testimony is concise and and thorough and, and in the process you obviously have to t- give a little bit of the of what it was like before Christ and and then we want your testimony to contain the gospel because our testimony does is not the power of God 
the salvation. It's the gospel that's the power of God's salvation. And so we <laughs> yeah. want to make sure that we have the bare minimum daily requirement of, of, of gospel truth in our testimony so that somebody having listened to it would know that they needed to uh, renounce dependence upon themselves, surrender to Jesus Christ, and uh, receive him by faith and repent of their sins. And then some basic rudiments of life support and spiritual pediatrics to get them. So, so evidently, people are not. Everybody's not a writer, are they? Everybody doesn't have a book inside of them, evidently. No, no, they don't. So God calls different people to different things, different gifts. So we do what God calls us to do, and do it with the best of your might, and uh, pray for God's good success for whatever God's called you to do. If you're called to be a writer, then work at it for a long time and try to become as good at it as you can. I'm, 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 I'm really aiming. I, I, I gave Don a, a permission to slap me or something or rebuke me, <laughs> rebuke me on air if I got too far off track. So I'm going to go back to uh, what exemplifies a book that changes the way we live because we've all read books that were that affected us that way, whether it was uh, Knowing God by, uh, uh, by J.I. Packer or whether it was... The Attributes of God by Arthur W. Pink or, or uh, The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. I mean, those are just some of the books. Yeah, well, there are various aspects to a book that can grab your heart and soul. Now, I'll tell you one thing uh, that maybe some of us guys that have maybe been to seminary and we've read all kind of the thick tomes, and but we're not good at telling stories. So one of the things that, uh, that I had to learn to work on, like in the story of, in this uh, Liberty book that I work on with John Bona, he encouraged me, he pressed me, tell more stories, tell more stories. And my natural bent is to just give him the theology. Well, the reason that the Liberty book is a good read is, you know, part, one of the reasons is that there's a lot of stories in that book. And so, and they're not just random stories, they're stories that express uh, specific ideas and truths that we can learn for our lives. So, you know, I tell the story of um, Oliver Cromwell. I, I give a short, a brief chapter about his life and his fight for liberty in England. Well, that's a tremendous story. It's very inspiring. And, you know, if you go and look up his writings, his letters and things that he had to say, Oliver Cromwell packed his, when he wrote a letter to his family, it was packed with scripture and great um, uh, spiritual insights. That, that was the, the force behind his life. Well, so we told that story in the Liberty Book. And that, uh, so stories can be a powerful, powerful way of communicating spiritual truth. And it isn't necessarily natural to the writer if the writer is a theology wonk. You know, what we want, we want precepts. We want, you know, tell me the Bible verse, tell me what it means. <laughs> and, uh, but the readers, they want something else. They want to have something that's more connected to life and uh, where they can walk. They, can, You know, part of good writing is that people need to feel it as well as understand it with their brain. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, entertainment is really even the primary reason why people read a book, do they? I mean, they don't just read it for entertainment. Well, I, some people do, sure. I mean, I read books for, you know, for entertainment sometimes, but if you want a book that's going to transform your life, it's not entertainment, it's something else. 
but it might be partly entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's that it's, element is there. I mean, you're 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 delighting in reading it. it there's a, there's an appeal to it, but it not it's not like because it makes you laugh or anything like that. Right. I mean, if you read a Louis Louis L'Amour book, you can be very entertained. You can be it'll grab your attention. You'll spend hours turning the pages and, and staring at that book, but it won't feed your soul. Yeah, I've known people who I used to have a friend of mine and that, that would read a paperback uh, sci-fi book every day. Wow. I can't imagine, I can't imagine and he was a brilliant guy, but he was, yeah. I, can't, I can't imagine the, what his inside of his brain looked like. Um, okay, so. But, well, back to this, let me emphasize something. You, know, you kind of bounced off of it. You said, what exemplifies a book that changes the way we live? I do that. I think if we're talking about Christian books affecting Christian people, the Christian books need to have the best of Christian themes assumed within the book. So I had mentioned assume that the Old Testament applies to life today. Well, I also assume that, uh, I mean, my my understanding of Scripture is that uh, is the post-millennial, my theology is post-millennial. So I believe that that the effect of our work for Christ on this earth actually can change the nature in the, of the culture and the civilization towards the better. I think God uses us to improve society. So the, uh, that assumption is built into any book I write now. It's just one of the things that's carried through. So I don't have to explain. There's not a single passage or paragraph in this Liberty book that, that says, oh, look, reader, uh, you should be a post-millennialist. That's not in there. But you'll find it assumed throughout the whole book. Is that what makes uh, the Liberty Book different than other books about freedom? Yeah. It's, it's, see, the Liberty Book is based on the concept that Scripture and the life of Christ, you know, these are the places where we look if we want to find true liberty. So if we want to know how we can have a return to liberty, we're going to have to find these things from Scripture. Now, there's a lot of books out there, especially pre-election, that are talking about how can we get our freedom back, you know, the oppression, the tyrants, and so forth, how bad the parties are, you know, all these kind of books, lots of them. But I'm unaware of any other book like the Liberty Book because what we've done is we've gone to Scripture, we found, I mean, point out the fact that Christ stood up at the beginning of his ministry. He stood up in the synagogue and said, I've come to set at liberty the captives. That's what he said. And it was a major theme of his ministry and his life. That's what he came to do. Well, I'm not of the I'm not of the opinion that uh, that presidential elections have a whole lot to do with freedom or liberty. But I but this is probably not a minute too soon to begin to promote this book because um, I don't know whether we'll see a change or not. I, you know, sadly, I've, I've become pretty jaded about the whole political process. I, I, I frequently refer to the uh, United States government as United States Incorporated, and a crime, it just is <laughs> nothing but a crime syndicate posing as a government. <laughs> well, there's some truth to that. But, uh, but uh, yeah, the, uh, having written a book on freedom um, on a scale of one to one hundred, you know, obviously the way things are normally scaled. Where do you think that we are? Uh, in terms of our freedom uh, in America on, on that scale? 
Well, is 100 being the best? Yeah, 100 100, yeah, 100 <laughs> being the best. Oh, I don't know. We must be down around 30 or so. <laughs> you know, Some people are saying things can't get worse, but I'll tell you, I've read enough history to know things can get a lot worse. So there's never a better time to repent than right now. Yeah, true. You know, I was uh, listening to um, a doctor yesterday was talking about the United States as a number one for the amount of money they spend on health care and 59th in the world in terms of actual health care. <laughs> and uh, the, the, only, the only category related to health that we were number one in, aside from the amount of money we spend, was obesity. Every other category we were. So I would say that, you know, I, I, I flipped through the book to see if there was anything in here on, uh, uh, because I guess liberty, the, the, the converse of liberty is tyranny. Tyranny, correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, just like the the converse of blessing is cursing. Yeah. yeah. So we can yep. say we're you and you do. I saw in here you do address. I think and you probably do. Do address various different. You talk about financial liberty. There's one chapter here. Uh, I know um, I've been listening to Joel McDermott's Restoring America One County at a Time. Oh, sure. And, and he's been basically uh, going through the various different areas, whether it be uh, you know information tyranny. Mm-hmm. Our medical tyranny, our financial tyranny, yes. uh, military tyranny, uh, representational tyranny, whatever, you know. So, um, the Liberty Book, How Freedom Can and Will Be Won. Let me ask you a personal opinion. Sure. And you've got a, by the way, you've got a, 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 a um, I'm not a football wonk. Oh. But you do have some good, you, have, you do have some pretty good, I just opened up the endorsement pages uh, Jim Kelly, NFL Hall of Fame quarterback, Kirk Cameron. Yes. Pat Boone. Uh, yep. Alveda King. Yes. Niece of Martin Luther King. Yep. Tony Perkins of uh, Family Research County. Twyla Paris. Interesting. And uh, Matt Staver. So yes. you so you, so you've gotten at least what? Uh, I think that's seven or eight of them. Seven or eight people have read the book already. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, before it went to print. <laughs> I see. I see. Um, your your subtitle: How freedom can and will be won. Now, obviously, we we always say we always say that with a a uh, qualifier, uh, if the Lord wills. But yeah. we know He does will freedom. He does will liberty. Right. So Ultima- I didn't, ultimately, I didn't put a qualifier. I just descent, I'm assuming because where I'm at theologically, that ultimately Christ, uh, His kingdom is victorious in the earth, and that kingdom carries forward uh, whole themes of liberty, and freeing the captives. That's very much a part of what uh, God wants to do in this world. So, and we have a a great guidebook called the Bible that will tell us if we study it how uh, people can live free, how nations can be free. Well, there's a lot of nations mentioned in the Bible that are not on the map today. That's right. So and, God wipes them out. And uh, so my question is, are you optimistic uh, uh, of the current configuration of, of, of the USA? Uh, or do you believe that there's going to be a good bit of deconstruction before God begins to rebuild well, I don't know if the borders will change. I couldn't venture to say that, but I can tell you this. If we don't repent as a nation, God will bring on us the judgments that he has brought 
on uh, his people in the past. So if we want to find out what's our future, you know, if we continue to rebel against God and our morals and our behaviors and our attitudes, well, we can look at ancient Israel. We can find out what did God do with them. Hey, in, your, in, your, in your book promoting, Don, have you found that uh, by and large Christians accept that premise as a given that America is under judgment? Uh, I think we're seeing it. Yeah, the church is starting to catch on. And we don't, I think the broad evangelical church isn't quite sure why we're under judgment other than for everybody seems to get abortion is really a bad deal. And that's bringing us under the judgment of God. But there's much more than that as well. And I think the church is not well informed. They're not hearing it from the pulpits. So there's a whole uh, great number of American Christians who go to church on Sunday morning and they hear messages on evangelism and personal morals or piety which are good things, but they need to hear about some other things so as if a well. So if a person, I send this book to my, one of my children, yep. adult children, what, is, what are they going to take away from this book? They think they know what freedom is. They think, you know, uh, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, aren't we? <laughs> they, after reading this book, what are they going to take away from it? They're going to take away from it that if they want to see greater freedom for themselves and for their children, that they and their children need to start obeying God, doing the right things. And if they do that, they will begin to experience more liberty. And so the book explains various areas, like you mentioned, uh, economic liberty, uh, the right to bear arms, and some of these things that are common to us in some ways, and we know these things should be true. But this book shows us the, the biblical reasons uh, why we should expect uh, to build a culture in those directions. As a writer, and having written uh, a few books now, uh, do you think that the, the Christian uh, the Christian books, uh, and, uh, I'm even thinking more of Christian bookstores, uh, are, they, are they going to, uh, are they going to continue to, are they even relevant at this point? Are most of the good books that, that in your opinion, are really worth uh, buying and, and sharing and giving copies to people? Uh, they're probably never going to make any sort of uh, top bestseller book racks in any of the major Christian bookstores of today. Well, no, I mean, they might. I mean, part of what we're trying to do here is to write books that will be bestsellers. And, uh, you know, so, the, I mean, the main goal of the book you know, that I write is not to just be a bestseller, but that's part of what we're trying to do. So you so, think the Liberty book actually has a... A shot is it going to be available like in Walmart's or regular? It'll uh, be available everywhere. It's it's in, available in, uh, in Barnes and Noble right now, and I think it's up on Amazon. It's you know I mean you can find it, but the best place to find it is on the uh, on our website is the Liberty Press, the Story of Liberty Press dot com. For heaven's sake, Don, you're famous. <laughs> Did you listen to my chance uh, my interview with James Wesley Rawls? No. Huh? You know, you know who he is? No, I don't. Well, James Wesley Rawls is a best-selling author. He's been on top, you know, best New York Times best-selling list number one several times, and he, he is a uh, he probably doesn't consciously self-identify as a Christian Reconstructionist. He does identify as Reformed. Oh, good. I would identify him as a Reconstructionist. Mm-hmm. Because his last book called Land of Promise basically has got a victorious note, and he's not—he he obviously he's not—he's not—he uh, tends to write like a post-millennialist. Oh, good. Uh, and uh, and his books are uh, like the Patriot series, and he's got another one called the 
counter caliphate series really and so it was interesting but of course we didn't we didn't we didn't um, talk much about writing books except his books read sort of like how-to books oh and, and yet they're wrapped in a novel mm-hmm and okay. so a really and I have sat down and read his books you know 250 300 pages in one setting oh yeah they're they're, so, they're that they're that well written captivating good yeah yeah how many sittings will it take me to read this one? Well, uh, how long you want to sit? <laughs> I didn't take any sped reading course, and Evelyn, I'm not, I'm an Evelyn Wood dropout. <laughs> well, you started on Saturday. Maybe you can finish it on Sunday. Maybe okay. Uh, so you think Christian books are going to continue to be important? Absolutely. What about? But you don't think necessarily the big, the big thick hardback theological someone once told me don't buy a paperback that don't buy any book that's not it that's not a hardback if it's not a hardback it's probably <laughs> not enduring it doesn't have enduring value i think you're probably trying to shatter that paradigm i i am yeah i think that there's plenty of worthwhile books that are paperbacks now you know the thing is people in the reform community or in the you know people that read a lot of books uh, that are theologically minded they read big thick heavy hardcover books but the rest of the world does not. And we need and we need to clarify that there that everybody who buys a lot of books doesn't necessarily read a lot of books. Well, that's true. We buy more than we read. <laughs> but once in a while we do pick up the big thick books and read them. <laughs> but there's a there's a whole world of Christian people out there that are really not probably going to pick up an inch and a half thick hardcover book with tiny little print and no stories and read it cover to cover. So, what what do people want to now, read? Now your books don't have reading. your books don't have illustrations, do they? No, not much. No, uh-uh. no, they have nice covers though. Yes, it's a nice cover, and uh, we'll probably I'll take us I'll do a uh, picture and put it up when we when we show this. So uh, now this is a question we talk about because we're we want to be tactical, and, and this is you know this obviously the opportunity to meet with you. Um, and we've we've engaged one another a few times online, and 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 um, and I mean I already knew where you were coming from philosophically, uh, but we're always talking about we want to be tactical. We want to we see this this objective of a city on a hill, and we realize that we're not there now. We're we're pinned down on the beach. Yes, we are. And we're, one of the questions we're trying to ask ourselves. And, 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 and help people to think about and discuss, make this a, a to- hot topic, is how do we get there from here? Yeah. What is the path back to God and to that city on a hill, Don, for the American church today? Well, we understand that the path back is not straight through politics. That's not the answer, but politics can be important. So our best path back is to build strong families that are spiritually strong, committed to Christ, and committed to obedience to Christ in all things, and uh, that are seeking um, the kingdom and working for the kingdom. That's what we want to do. And if we have strong individuals, strong families, and ultimately strong churches, the rest of the culture will be transformed. That's where the power is, is in raising godly children, rearing up uh, godly churches, where great teaching uh, is coming from the pulpit every Sunday morning. The people are maturing in the faith. 
they're seeing that they need to obey Christ in all things. It's, if it's business, if it's medicine, if it's agriculture, you know, if it's whatever, if they're studying biology, if they're psychologists, philosophers, whatever it is, that all of us, every single Christian, needs to be engaged in the rebuilding and building a Christian uh, civilization. That's what we need to do. So it comes from the bottom up. Well, naturally, you know, knowing your 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 pre, the presuppositions you're working with, and you being on Reconstructionist Radio, your answer is entirely predictable. Yes, I know. I, I'm sorry, I'm so predictable. But I wish you were going to tell us. Some, I wish you were going to tell us some secret. No, uh, but I'll tell you what. Politics are important, and here we are. What two months away from election? Three months from the election, and uh, the Christian Church is all in turmoil about who am I going to vote for? Who am I going to vote for? So you know, there are important questions. Uh, how are we going to do this whole voting thing? Our candidates are atrocious in terms of presidential candidates. You know, maybe so there's almost everybody has local candidates they could support for something. But we're trying to figure out what to do, and probably we have too much emotion invested into it. We're, I mean, in if you go on Facebook, I, well, I know you do because that's where I met you. But we know that people out there are practically reaching through the wires and strangling each other over opinions. Yeah, I tend to think of the presidential elections like the Super Bowl of politics. <laughs> Really doesn't right. mean anything in the long run, but it's but but people get a chance to root for their favorite team. I, I want to go back to one thing you said in terms of the path back to God. I, I want to. I would only not to be contrary, but I would only I would only add two things, uh, maybe three. But I'd start with the the family first. We think about you know the various different spheres of influence. You know self-government, family government, ecclesiastical government, civil government. I would say more than just homeschooling and Christian families. I would say I would say Christian homes. And you said, well, isn't that really the same thing? Families live in homes. I said, no, because you can be diligently discipling your children and educating them and keeping them free from the pollution of, of Leviathan and you can be active in your local assembly. You can be faithful, uh, but you want your home to be a lighthouse. Yes. And the home I have found from the the wonderful relationships that I've built, both through uh, my the War Room podcast, me getting affords me the opportunity to meet a lot of good people, and some lifelong relationships with some really good good saints. I've learned that the the home is maybe one of the most overlooked tools of ministry. That you, that. Uh, oh, how are you thinking? What well, you... in the sense of the ministry of hospitality. Oh, yeah. And uh, reaching out to neighbors and people, and the idea that you really aren't beginning to know someone, and and they may not be willing to really open up to you until you have made yourself vulnerable a little bit and invited them into your home and extended hospitality to them and not just your parlor where the where the salesmen sit <laughs> but into the kitchen yeah you know into your family room on your back deck yeah where people at that point you're beginning to build relationships i don't think there's going to be any you know it's not you know in the same way we don't absorb books by sleeping with them under our pillow uh you don't build you don't advance the kingdom just by doing spiritual activities with people or in close proximity to other people 
ultimately there's relationships involved. Right. Yeah. So that's certainly true. Yeah. And I I won't say that I'm strong at that. We do work at it. You know, we have we have worked to invite people to our home and to use it as a place of uh, uh, where people can stay with us. Uh, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a few months, and to be a safe haven for people. I believe yeah, that's when that's it be, I, I believe that's when friendships can become life changing. Is when they because at that point you're really you're you're you've yeah. There's vulnerability involved, and 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 that's give and take. The other thing I would simply say is, and and I guess I'm probably getting this a lot from listening to, admittedly, Bojadar and Stephen Perks a lot, is that what I have traditionally thought of as the regulative principles of worship, the idea that the saints faithfully gather, they have a call to worship, they have a confession of corporate sin, corporate confession of sin, they sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, they uh, collect tithes and offerings or pay tithes and offerings, they uh, have a Lord's, they celebrate the Lord's Supper where the emphasis is on the form and the elements and then they have a, a, a carefully and precisely exegeted uh, message. And then they have a benediction and a closing hymn, and then they go home. They might have five minutes worth of, you know, coffee and small talk in the, in the foyer. But basically, the members, the saints that are there in that congregation are really sort of passive. They're really just the furniture for the pastor's weekly performance. Okay, so where are you going with that? And where I'm thinking is that where we need the way back is to, for uh, as it pertains to all the various different spheres is for the body of Christ to become more dynamic and to recover the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer and so that rather than people coming to quote coming to church on the lord's day and opening their mouth and being fed like a mama bird regurgitating a a digested worm into the mouth of the baby bird and hopefully they're going to get enough spiritual nutrients from that one episode that one encounter to get them through to the next week and and where they'll come back for to be fed again. Really want to see the emphasis. I believe the emphasis needs to be in the local assemblies where elders, uh, and 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 the idea that every head of every household is an elder in training or should be, with the emphasis on mobilization, mobilizing the people of God to do the work of the ministry, so that they're not getting ministered to on the Lord's Day as much as their perception is is they're coming to get trained to minister throughout the week. Oh, well, that surely is a valuable thing to do. You know. It's going to be, you know, the thing is, as uh, guys that go to Reformed churches, we're, we're used to hearing a lot of doctrine, but it's what we're having a hard time doing is translating and, you know, kind of making that into something that really changes the world. So there's a whole lot of our churches that have sat for decade two decades three decades and never multiplied it's still one church well we're not very good at multiplying so the uh, a lot of the people that have terrible theology are good at, at multiplying their churches I want to ask you one last question before we give you a chance to to again uh, pl- uh, 
plug your books and tell us where we can find them. And that is the question. I want to just get some clarification on the vote book. Now, this is this vote book, will it help the reader in anything other beyond the presidential election? Or will it build him, it will help him to equip him with principles that will uh, have, that, that he can use in terms of local and county and, and state uh, oh, politics. Yeah, yeah. The the Christian Vote Book is a book that was designed to help Christians think through what are the biblical ideas, the biblical principles that we need to use when we step into a voting booth. And it's not just about a presidential election. This book is good for any election. County commissioner, yep. school board, anything. Any, anything. Because it's talking about core principles. It's not talking about politics at all. It's not talking about party politics at all. Uh, do you make the point uh, exegetically, uh, Don, that, or do you think it can be made, that voting is a responsibility? Well, within limits, it's a responsibility. I, we have a responsibility to um, to choose godly people for office. So if the, uh, if the option is there to vote for a person who meets the qualifications that God gives us, you know, I mean, and which are found in more than one place. But if we go to Exodus chapter 18, that's that's kind of the key passage we go to, or one of them, that tell us, you know, choose able men who fear God, that are honest, who don't uh, take bribes. Not well, to, not there's to, a basic formula. Not to give away the book, I'm not asking you to do that, but... Um, oh, we can give away the book. But, what, what, <laughs> but <laughs> what, what I'm getting at, though, is that if in the event that a, a, a race... Um, whether it's whatever level, local, county, state, federal, I should say national, uh, if there are no candidates that meet the, the biblical requirement that a believer can responsibly cast a vote for that individual, uh, is, it, is, it, uh, is it reasonable or is it obedient uh, that the Christian abstain from participation at all? Well, in our system, we can vote third party or we can write in a candidate. So as Christians, we need to maintain personal integrity when we vote. So that's one that, I mean, there's really two aspects to, a, to your voting. You, wanna, uh, you want your candidate to win the election, but only if that candidate is a moral uh, candidate that meets the standards of uh, Exodus 18. Hey, listen, are you, do you have any other books that you're sitting on right now are there any books in your rattling around in your mind that you're thinking about or that you've already begun to write oh so many <laughs> really yeah. oh sure we're working right now i would john and i are getting ready to uh put out a book that we're calling the economic liberty book so the economic liberty book yeah so that'll be a small book about 80 pages any have you written any uh, any fictional books no, I haven't written any fictional books. Well, if you want to, i got a great idea. Would you write one where the South wins? <laughs> Don, how can people find you and, and find your, uh, your literary works? They can go to thestoryoflibertypress.com. 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 Is that yep. the best place to, to purchase your books? Yes, it is. That's, yep. that, so uh, what he's saying is that he gets more back on each book if you buy it through TheStoryOfLibertyPress.com yep. versus uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. That's correct. And but that's that, the only place you'll find the uh, Christian vote book. I see. And uh, we, 
I'm really still intrigued. This Advancing the Kingdom book really looks good. And uh, I, I, we'll have to talk off mic about, hey, it, what is the most ex, ex, expedient way that, we, that that perhaps could be re reproduced? Because, um, again, I think uh, it, 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 it's designed as a study guide. It is. And I'd love to see that book come back in print. I think... The, the you think theme, you, you think it came out too early? Yeah, I do. I think it it was on my heart to write that book, but the Christian Church in America they were not ready to hear the message of that book. And now it seems like there's a little revival. People want that book again. Well, I gave them all to Peter Hammond in uh, Africa, a missionary in Africa, and he gave away all my. Well, supplies. you can be sure if you gave them to Peter, <laughs> he he made good use of them. So, so somewhere out in Africa, there's quite a few hundred people who have my advance in the kingdom. Amen. Well, maybe that's why the church in Africa is going through revival right now, Don. And we well, are. Okay, well, so we'll take credit for it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, give us one more time the website. Website is thestoryoflibertypress.com. Okay. Uh, Don Schonzenbach, uh, suspender man. Uh, friend him on Facebook. He's a delight. He's got a great sense of humor for a Yankee uh, who, who lives down south now in, in God's country. That's right. Uh, yeah, but we really do appreciate you uh, taking time from your uh, your business trip to visit with us here. And folks, thank you for joining us today on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Thank you.